All right, Luke chapter 24. All right, Luke 24, down there by verse 1. We look at a lot of Bible verses here in, uh, in our Bible church, so bear with us. Flip around with us if you can, and if not, just uh, listen is good as well. But um, Luke 24 is where I'm going to be, and uh, obviously, I mean, you'd have to kind of be a bit of an ostrich with your head in the sand to not know that we live in a very troubled world. I mean, there's trouble without, there's trouble within, I mean, whether it's politically or socially or economically or maybe personally or emotionally or spiritually, it seems to be like everywhere you turn, there's trouble in some kind or some shape. I mean, I saw this meme, maybe you saw it as well, that said, uh, 2021, people wore masks at the gas pump. 2022, they're wearing blindfolds, right, because of, you know, just the economic topsy-turvy inflation, this and that, and all that stuff, and I mean, that stuff aside, that's the easy stuff. I mean, after last week, you can't even get on a train anymore without worrying about what's going to happen. You know, I know that because I teach kids in New York City, and I watch all their phones blow up and go, oh, I take that train. Oh, my friend was on that train when all that stuff happened on the subway earlier this week. So the world is just, like, very troubled at every turn, domestically, foreign, you know, wars over here, fighting over there, turmoil over here, strife over there, just trouble. Am am I talking to the right crowd, right? There's trouble. And when you're living in a very troubled world, you know what happens? It's easy to become troubled yourself. Now, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus Christ has just risen from the dead, all right? And uh, look what happens here in Luke 24, down by verse number one. The Bible says, uh, now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. So, wow, we rejoice, right? We get excited. We get thrilled. I mean, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. But do you see the disciples' reaction? Verse number four, they're perplexed. That's like super confusion. Verse number five, it says they're afraid so much that they're on the floor trembling. Then Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, bumps into some guys on the road to Emmaus. And you look at the end of verse number 17. He's looking at these guys and it says they're sad. Wow. I mean, it's supposed to be an exciting time, but all these disciples don't know what's going on. They're still so troubled. Now jump to verse 36. Luke 24, 36. Now Jesus Christ is going to appear to his apostles, to the 11, right? And in verse 36, they're hiding out in a room somewhere. And it says in verse 36 of Luke 24, And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? You understand what the apostles are doing now? The apostles now are enemies of the state. They have sided with Jesus Christ. They have walked with Jesus Christ. They have preached with Jesus Christ. They've done all these things with Jesus Christ. And guess what? Now they've crucified Jesus Christ. They think the Romans have put that traitor, that troublemaker down. Now the apostles figure they're coming for us next. We never thought the Messiah could be killed. What's going on? They're hiding for their lives. They're troubled in a very troubling world. You see verse 37, what does Jesus Christ offer them? Jesus Christ appears offering them peace. And what happens? They become even more troubled. They're terrified now. They're afraid. Like, oh, what is happening? And verse 38 is the verse I want to park on because in the verse 38, this risen Christ, this victorious Savior asks them a very important question that we all have to ask ourselves. Why are ye troubled? Why are ye troubled? If you're staring at me, 
conquering death, overcoming sin, getting out of hell, opening up the doors for life eternal, why are ye troubled? If Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, why are we troubled? Why are you troubled? Why are you worried? Why are you upset? Why are you agitated? Why are you so easily disturbed? That's the question I just want to talk to you about for a few minutes today. Why are ye troubled? Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We thank you today, Lord. We pray this would come across the right way, Father. If anyone here today doesn't know you as Savior, that king that the children sang about, Father, I pray out of the mouth of those babes, they would realize that you're a Savior worthy to trust, that the trouble we have without and within, Father, can all be solved because Jesus Christ is the answer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay right there in Luke 24, and I'd like you just to turn back to verse 5. I want to say, number one, why are you troubled? Number one, God's words will never fail. I'll say that again. Why are you troubled? God's words will never fail. Now, I want you to notice something really peculiar about what happens in this scene, because after his resurrection, you know what Jesus Christ and his, his servants are doing? They keep reminding people about his words. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 5. It says, they're afraid bowed down their faces to the earth. They said unto them, these are the angels, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Look at verse 25. Now, Jesus Christ has appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he's kind of disguised himself, and he's chatting with them. And in verse 25, he says to them, Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then Jesus Christ appears in the upper room. Verse 44. Jump to verse 44. He appears in the upper room. And again, he's reminding them about his words. Verse 44. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Why did Jesus Christ keep pointing people back to what he had said after the resurrection? You know why? Because the empty tomb is confirmation undeniable that God's words will never fail. I mean, there's nothing more impossible than seeing somebody come back from the dead. And Jesus Christ did it. And he's like, I told you I was going to do it. I told you I was going to do it. I told you I was going to do it, right? He keeps reminding them of that because they need to remember that God's words will never fail. The empty tomb reminds you that 1 Corinthians 15, you don't have to turn there, is all about the resurrection. And the apostle Paul writes, if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. What am I doing here this morning if Jesus Christ is not alive and risen from the dead, right? My preaching is empty. It's fruitless. It's worthless. It's vain. If it's just a religious exercise, hey, if you came in here and saw people shouting and people excited, people crying, we're not talking about a creed here today, folks. We're not talking about a statue here today, folks. We're talking about a risen Savior that we have a real relationship with. And I spoke to him this morning, and he spoke to me from his word, and his empty tomb keeps reminding me, I always say what I'm going to do is right. It always comes true. Don't be so troubled. But I know what people say. Oh, there's so many religions in the world. How do you know your message is the right one? And some people say, oh, but there's so many religious texts in the world, right? There's so many Bibles or scriptures or stuff that people are reading. How can you be so sure your Bible is the right one? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Go to Acts chapter 17. Go to Acts chapter 17. Let me give you that. Acts chapter 17. Look at this. Acts chapter 17. Look at verse 29. 
Now, the Apostle Paul is, he's preaching to an educated audience. He's preaching to some Greeks, some scholars, some philosophers, some smart thinkers, and they probably ask the same questions that you might be asking, or people might ask you, how do you know that Bible's the right one? How do you know Jesus is the truth? How do you know your faith is the one that God really wants us to follow? Acts 17, verse 29, the Apostle Paul preaches and says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Verse 31, Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. You say, how do I know that Jesus Christ is the only Savior? And how do I know that that Bible is the book that I should follow? The empty tomb, folks. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, that verse says, the assurance You know what assurance is? It's a statement somebody makes to relieve your doubts. And when God looked down and saw people worshiping idols and statues and berries and rocks and suns and moons and stars and all this stuff, he said, I'm just going to turn a blind eye to that and I'm going to resurrect my son and I'm going to tell you now, that's the guy you got to follow. That's the one that's the truth and that's the one that's going to judge you. He says, I've given you the assurance. That's God's declaration to relieve all your doubts, to take away your fears and your troubles. You know what the empty tomb is? The empty tomb is God's guarantee that his words will never fail. It's God's pledge to you that Jesus Christ is the truth. Amen? Now, listen. not trying to pick a fight, but I am. Siddhartha Gautama, known as the Buddha, he lies in a grave at the foot of the Himalayan mountains. Muhammad... The founder of Islam is buried in Medina, Saudi Arabia. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, is buried in Nauvoo, Illinois. Charlie Darwin is buried at Westminster Abbey in London. Karl Marx is buried at Highgate Cemetery in North London. But can you go back to Luke 24? Do you know what you hear still echoing 2,000 years later? Go back to Luke 24, verse 6. And you know what that statement, that declaration, that's still echoing 2,000 years later for you to take comfort in? Luke 24, 6. He is not here, here, here. For he is risen, risen. It's still echoing because it's still true. Hey, man, they've tried to find his bones. And nobody's been able to find those bones. Because if you found those bones, everything would fall apart. And God keeps reminding you, he's not here, he's risen. He's not here, he's risen. He's not here, he's risen. Hey, that's the receipt that you can claim God's promises. Did you forget the receipt? That means you can trust what God has said because that tomb is empty, just like he said it would be empty. Now look at verse 38 again. Look at verse 38. You say, well then, why are we troubled? Why are ye troubled? I don't mean we don't get down, we don't get up, we don't go through heartaches. I'm not saying that. Trust me, I know it. I've lived it. Right? You don't have to preach to me about that. But if the tomb is empty, as Jesus Christ said it, we said it would be, why are you troubled? Well, the answer is right there in verse 38. Your thoughts. Your thoughts. He said, why are ye troubled, verse 38, and why do thoughts... Arise in your hearts. See, God's given you a rock, but we like our thoughts sometimes. And those thoughts sometimes trouble us. You know what I was thinking for an analogy, and just bear with my analogy here, but you know what your heart is like? And I don't mean like your ventricles and your aortas and all that stuff, but I mean like your mind. You know what your heart is like? Your heart is like a witch's cauldron. You ever see like the cartoons, they get that big cauldron, double, double, toil and trouble, fire, burn, and cauldron, bubble, right? You know, they got all that stuff. And inside that cauldron is all kinds of stuff, good and bad, feelings, experiences, broken hearts, successes, lust, desires, wonderings, insecurities, all kinds of stuff. We're all inside that little cauldron called your heart. And you know what happens when the heat comes on? that cauldron, all that stuff just starts bubbling over. 
You know what those things are that come out of that cauldron? Your thoughts arising in your heart. And they're not based in the truth. They're based in some of your emotions, maybe some of your insecurities, maybe some of your past experiences. But when the heat comes on and trouble comes into your life, that cauldron starts bubbling over. Bloop, bloop. And these thoughts start arising in your hearts. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example that comes really close to home. We're riding down to Barnegat yesterday. And we're driving in a car, and we're having a great time. My son, Christian, he's been doing this leukemia treatment for 10 months, and he's been doing great. The last few days, he says he's felt so normal, he doesn't even want to go back. You know, I'm like, Christian. You know, so he's, we're doing this. He's playing basketball. We're doing all this stuff, and we're having a great time. And we're about to head down to Barnegat and go give the gospel to Mary's neighborhood, which was a fantastic time. The weather was beautiful. The youth were there. It was wonderful. And I look over my wife, and she's down looking at her phone. And I can tell by her countenance, something's not right. So I'm like, what's going on? Her phone starts blowing up. About 15 minutes before we pull up to Mary's house, her phone starts blowing up. You know what it starts blowing up? It starts blowing up with this prayer chain he's on about a young kid that she knows, that we don't know, but in this group we have, who had leukemia, and it came back after three months after the treatment ended. You know what happened? The whole car changed. And you know what happened? All those fears and all those securities. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What about this? What does that mean for you? And all the, they weren't based in truth. (laughs) Found out later the kid is a totally different illness. Found out later the kid is doing very well. Praise the Lord, all that stuff. But in that moment, when that heat came on, I'm being transparent with you. You know what happens? Bloom. All those things start coming up because all that stuff in my heart, that fear as a dad that that thing might come back, that fear that just bloom, bloom. The devil just pushed a little button to kind of play with my head as I was about to go do something for him. And all those thoughts start arising in your heart. And you know what happens? Those thoughts feel so real. And those feelings seem so true. You know why? Because you feel them. And they're yours. And because it's your heart and your feelings and and just what's going through your mind, you really think that what you think is what you should think. And it's not a sure foundation. Is it possible you could be wrong? You ever think that? Right? Have you ever been wrong about anything in your life? But this time, no, you got it. You're right, right? But is it possible? I like to tell my skeptical friends, hey, if I drew a circle and drew a line in the middle and I said, you know what? Let's say this circle represents everything there is to know. I'll say that you know half of everything there is to know. Is it possible the truth resides in the other half? You understand that? That humility of mind to say, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I'm not seeing it the way I should be. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I know you don't understand, but why are you trusting your thoughts? Why are you following your feelings? Why are you just letting those bloom, bloom, you just, and you hold on to them. And God's like, wait, 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 there might be something just in the other half of that circle that you haven't thought about yet. Now go to John chapter 14. Let me show you something really good here. John chapter 14. Great familiar verse, John 14. Does that make sense? Double, double, toil and trouble. I had to pull out some of my Macbeth quotes there, right? John 14, verse 6. You know what? And it's really slippery because you really think that what you think is what you should think because it seems so real and it's affecting your body. It's affecting your mind. It's troubling your spirit. It's actually firing something off in you that's creating you sadness or grief or trouble. And God says, why are you putting all your confidence in these bubbles that are coming from that heart of yours that's deceitful and desperately wicked. That's what the Bible says of it. Now look at John chapter 14. Tell me these are some, not some of the most beautiful things the Savior ever said. John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, say amen. Okay. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm not dealing in murkiness. I'm not talking in the shadows to you. I'm trying to tell you the truth. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know. And the way, ye know. 
Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And then Jesus makes it so, so plain. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You know what God did right there? Jesus Christ gave us his infallible, preserved words so we wouldn't be troubled. So we wouldn't have to worry what the truth is. So we wouldn't have to worry what God wants. You know what he wants? He wants Jesus Christ. You know what he wants for you? To have Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus Christ wants to do for you? To bring you to the Father. That's what he said. He cut right through. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I'm going to give you something sure and steadfast and not as slippery as those murky little bubbles coming up out of that cauldron. He goes, I know the affairs of this world will trouble you, but I am a rock that you can lean on. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why? So when those thoughts, listen now, so when those thoughts start rising up, you can cast them down before they afflict you. I'm not saying things don't rise up in your heart. Boom. I don't know if God loves me. Cast that down. I don't know if I could trust God with this one. Bloop. Cast that down. I don't know which way God wants me to go. Bloop. Cast that down. Well, I just think, I know the Bible says, but I should do it this way. Cast that down. God says, I've given you a rock to lean on. The truth. You know when they were going to put Jesus in that tomb? They said, you know, Pilate. Listen, bro, Pilate, this guy, Jesus said, I'm paraphrasing loosely, forgive me. This guy, don't, don't get something, you're reaching for a rock, right? This guy said, that deceiver said that after three days, he's going to rise from the dead. We want some soldiers there. Let's put a rock there. Let's put, not Dwayne Johnson, but let's put a big stone there. We'll put a rock there and we'll put some soldiers there and we'll, they's not, he's not going to go anywhere. We'll, we'll show them. And you know what Pilate said to those Jews when he said that? He said, you have a watch. He said, take these soldiers Go your way, make it as sure as he can. Because I think deep down, old man Pilate knew that Jesus Christ was telling the truth. And I think old man Pilate knew that this man Jesus was somebody different. And he said, you go put your bazookas and go put your whatever you want to put there, put your SWAT team there, go do it. But I think Pilate hit the road after that. I think Pilate went on vacation to somewhere else. I think he left town that night because I think Pilate knew something. Hey, do you know, do you know deep down that God's words will never fail? Yeah. You got to search your heart. When you forget that, you just got to remind yourself, God, I don't think so, but you promised me that your words will never fail. And that's how you cast down your imaginations and you let God's truth be your foundation. That's how you grow. That's how you get strong. That's how we please God. Instead of bloop, 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 right? That thing just comes bubbling up and you're just like grabbing like the air. Like, look, there's nothing there. God's word is the truth that you can hold on to, folks. It's the truth that you can hold on to. Hey, you know what Charles Spurgeon said? He said, I have never yet met with a person who trusted God and found the Lord's promise to fail him. Have you? I, I, it hasn't happened in my life. Every time I get messed up is because I step away from that Bible. And I step away from that book and I disregard something God has said. I cry, I weep, I worry, I fear. We all have these things. Nobody's walking on water, but you don't have to stay troubled. You could find a sure foundation to kind of get some footing. The Bible goes on to say, if Christ be not risen, we're found false witnesses of God. I mean, I'm putting myself on the line here. I'm telling you to trust God with your family, with your life, with your soul. If I'm wrong, I'm a false witness. You know, I got my buddy Eli back there. He's a carpenter. If I keep witnessing about Eli's work and say, he does a good job, he does a good job, he does a good job, you can keep taking my word for it. But when you see for yourself, then you'll know. Then it'll stop being belief and it'll be experience. Then you'll know. Then you'll know. And Jesus says right there, if it were not so, I would have told you. See what you got to do? When you put God's word to the test, you'll know for yourself this book never fails, brethren. You'll know this book never fails. You just got to be willing to trust it. Even when you don't understand everything, even when the heat is on and the thoughts are bubbling over, you got to say, Lord, you're right. I got to trust what you said. I got to hold on to what you said because I'm shaking right now, Lord. I don't know what's going on right now, Lord. I'm a little nervous right now, Lord. My mind is vexed right now, Lord. And the Lord will say, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. 
I love you, he says that. You know, people stress so much today. We have like the, I mean, I teach high school. We have high levels of suicidal ideation. We have highest levels of depression, highest levels of anxiety. We have just, I mean, I teach, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds. And it breaks my heart sometimes to see like the mental anguish that they're in, the trouble that they're in. Because people are just, they don't know what the truth is anymore. They don't have like a a bottom to stand on. They don't have a a, a foot to rest on. It's like they're in free fall today. It's like this station says this, this station says that. Mom and dad say this, my friends say that. Social media says, holy mackerel what social media says. And there's all this stuff flying around out there. And people are stressing because no one knows what the truth is. But we don't have to be troubled about the future. Because we've got words that never fail. We've got promises that have never been broken. So Spurgeon says very well, he says, therefore trust and be not afraid. Whatever else may prove a failure, the promise of God never will. Treasure laid up in this bank is beyond all hazard. That's what old man Spurgeon said. I think he was right. So reason number one why you don't have to be troubled or stay troubled is God's words will never fail. Let me give you number two. Go back to Luke 24. Number two, I'm hurrying here, I know. Luke 24, why are you troubled? Why are you troubled? Number one, God's words will never fail. Number two, why are you troubled? God wants to fix and fellowship. Amen? God wants to fix and fellowship. You know the last time most of these guys, these disciples, these apostles, you know the last of these, time most of these guys saw Jesus Christ, the Bible says they all forsook him and fled. The last time they saw him, it was the garden when he got arrested. They all ran for the hills like you and I might have run for the hills because they saw the Gestapo come out for their Messiah and put him in handcuffs and they said... Oh boy, and they, like Wiley Coyote, they ran and the smoke probably hit their sandals. They were running so fast. And they would think when Jesus came back, he would be ready to bop them and give them an Italian 45, right? And just smack them like this. But look what happens in verse number 36. After their failures, 36, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. After their failures, Jesus Christ passes through the walls to be with them again. You say, where do you get that, Pat? John chapter 20 says the doors were shut. They had the doors shut and barricaded, and all of a sudden Jesus walks right in there. How'd that happen? Because he was able, that resurrected body, to go right through those solid objects, and he so badly wanted to see his disciples. Yeah, the ones that forsook him and fled, he was willing to go right through the barricade to be with them again. Why are you troubled? 37, keep reading. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as he see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. Man, even after they're afraid and they're screaming and they're terrified, guess what? Jesus Christ shows them his body. Why? So they can feel his presence. Here, look, look. Feel my hands. See my feet? Look, that's where the spear went in. He kind of let them touch him and handle him. Why? Because he wanted to be with them. He wanted to fix and fellowship with them. 41, keep reading. And while they yet believe not for joy, now they're so excited, they don't even believe what's going on. They think they're dreaming. They're like, oh my goodness, this is Jesus. I must have eaten some bad mushrooms. They don't know what's going on. They're flipping out like, wow, how could this be? I don't believe it. Right, I have something so good to you and you go, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You're so excited. That's what's happening. I don't believe this. I don't believe this. And look what happens. And while they yet believe not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, have you here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And of a honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. Why did he do that? Because after their unbelief, Jesus Christ sits down and eats to assure them that he's there, he's real, and he wants fellowship. Don't we fellowship over a meal most? Come over for dinner, right? We fellowship. So he says, hey, just to prove to you that I'm really here and I really want to be with you, give me some of that mackerel, give me some of that, whatever, that salmon, whatever you got over there. Put some butter on it and let's sit down and I'm going to show you right now. Now I'm really here. Peter, take the bones out, right? You know, just all that stuff. Right, so he's sitting there with them. Brethren, that is encouraging to me. Yeah. 
Because you know what? You go through life, you and I may fail the Lord, and you and I may even forsake Him, but you know what God's desire is? It's always to fix and fellowship with us. It's always been that way. Go back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Let me show you in the book of Genesis that this has always been God's way with man. He's always coming after us. He's always seeking us out because he always wants to fix and fellowship with us again. Genesis 2, verse 7, the Bible says this. It says, um, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Listen, right there, in the beginning, God creates man, and he puts him in paradise. There's no sin there. There's no death there. There's no trouble there. Amen? Then look what happens. Verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. You know what God does right there? God gives man a choice. You know why he gives man a choice? Because the Lord wanted people to choose him. He wanted people who would love him freely. Not because they were programmed to. I mean, wouldn't you want that with your children? Do you want your children to love you because they've been hardwired to love you and they have no will? Or they chose to love you because they see your benevolence, your goodness, your long-suffering and your mercy? That's what God's doing here. He's giving them a choice. So he shows them, I make the rules, but you could choose to follow them or not and face the consequences. And then we know what happens in Genesis 3.1. The Bible says, now the serpent, that's the devil, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You know what happens right there? The serpent rolls up and he starts poisoning their minds and starts making them see the glass half empty instead of overflowing. God's given you all this stuff, but what about that? He changed God's word, right? Didn't God said, of all the trees thou mayest freely eat? He took that out. <laughs> he took that out. He kind of changed the story, and he starts poisoning the mind. You know what happens when the devil rolls up on you? He starts poisoning your mind. Look what he did. Look what she did. Can you believe that? Can you believe this? And instead of seeing all that you do have, the devil start making your harp on, look at that. Look at that. Didn't matter that I've got a billion stories about people that had leukemia and never had a problem with it ever again. The devil on that ride for a few minutes was just harping on, but what about that one kid? What about that one kid? That could be you. What if that's you, right? And, and it was just, it's crazy, right? It's crazy. And that's what the devil does. You got all these blessings. You got all this hope. You got all this truth. You got all this power. You got all this access. You got all this mercy. You got all this goodness. You got all this joy. You got all this prosperity for the future. You got all this stuff that God has given you. And that little serpent just weasels into your paradise. And he says, yeah, but what about that? What about that one thing? And it just grows like a cancer, like a canker, like a sore. And then finally, in verse number six, we see what happens. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Oh, that's nice. And that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And we know the story. The man that God created in paradise rebels against him and rejects his maker. You know what we call that? It's a very simple word. Sin. That's called sin. You know what's in the middle of sin? I. I am at the heart of sin. When I choose my way over God's way, that I is how you make the word sin. And now I want you to notice in the next few verses, I want you to notice what happens. Notice man's reaction. Verse 7. And the eyes of them both were open. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Man's reaction is to cover it up, run away, and hide from an all-seeing God. 
That's our reaction. It's been since the first man. Can I show you, though, in verse number 9, God's response? God's response, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? He knew exactly where he was. He knew exactly what he was doing. But God's response is to come down, reach out, and help the sinner. See, that's different than what the devil makes you think. The devil makes you think, God doesn't want anything to do with you. You're a sinner. I heard what you did last night. I know what you did last week. I know what you said this morning on the way to that church service. God wants nothing to do with you. And God says, get out of here. Where are you? I'm reaching out for you. I'm coming down for you. You say, why would God do that? Because God wants fellowship with you. That's why you were created. You see verse number 8? It says the voice of the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The voice of the Lord is Jesus Christ. The Word. The voice. And guess what? What is He doing? He's coming down to find and fix you so you can fellowship again. That's what God does. Contrary to whatever you think or what religion has told you. That's how God rolls. Why are you troubled? Why are you troubled with a God like that? That you could come to Him for forgiveness. That you could come to Him for mercy. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you could come to Him for eternal life today as a free gift. Why are you troubled? And Christian, if God has already died for you on the cross and shed His blood to cover all your sin, why are you troubled? What would ever keep you from Jesus Christ if He's already nailed it to the cross? Why would you stay away from Him now? Why are you troubled? I had to rack my mind, and the only thing I could think about is you'd have to love your sin more than the solution. If the solution is that easy, if the solution is that clear, if God is that willing to reconcile you, what would be the problem then? Because you kind of like the way you are. You kind of like being the boss of your own life. You kind of like being the God that sits on the throne of your own heart. You don't want to be accountable to somebody else. What if he talks to me about this? What if he bothers me about that? What if... See how it starts? Bloom, bloom, bloom. Just bubbling over, man, bubbling over. You know, I'm not a mechanic, but this is deep for you all who are. When the change oil light comes on in your car, you got two options. You can service your car, or you could pull the light out. I'm tired of listening to that. When the doctor says leukemia, like she did 10 months ago, you can get the treatment and get better or just choose to never see that doctor again. And when the Lord says sin, you can run to God and God's ways or you can run from God in self-righteousness. The choice, dear friends, is yours. But you see what God does in verse number 10? He says... And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, Adam says, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. You know what God's doing right there? You know what the voice of the Lord does, which we don't like? You know what the Bible does, the Word of God does? It confronts you. It confronts sinners so we can get the problem out in the open and fix it. But our Adamic nature likes hiding in the trees in the fig leaf bikini. We like that, right? We don't want to be exposed like that, so we hide away from it. We had a, uh, Some of the guys went out and gave tracks on Friday, and I got this, this phone call from this guy. And... I don't know, he needs to eat some red meat or something, this guy. He said, you know, somebody confronted me outside ShopRite. I am beside myself that I have to even make this call. This is not the way to get people into your community. You know, I don't know what was going on there. You know what these guys did? Hey, how you doing, man? Here's something for you to read. Have a great day. Confronted, accosted, a piece of paper. They reached out to me with a piece of paper. And I was so beside myself, I had to call you. Wow. You need to eat some red meat, man. You need to eat some red meat and kind of, 
I don't know, just uh, run a few laps on the treadmill, take some hormones or something, and kind of grow some facial hair or something. Because if you're that triggered by a sweet guy who I know, reach out and smile and say, have a nice day, happy Easter, happy... If that's got you, then you need to go back into your bubble somewhere, and I'll just send you some Grubhub, because I don't know how, how you could ever coexist in society ever again. I don't know how you coalesce. I might, I might step on your toe. I might cut you off, and then your head might blow off your neck. I don't know. It's crazy. But you know what? That's the Adamic nature. Doesn't like to be confronted by preaching. Doesn't like the light shined on the sin. So that's what he does. He, he confronts them, and in verse 21, and you see what they do? They do what we all do. They play the blame game. He did it. She did it. The serpent did it. And the serpent had nobody else to blame. So he just kind of got it on the chin. Right? He kind of went like this. And he said, all right, it's me. It's me. Right? But in verse 21, I want to show you what God did. After the confrontation, 21, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. You know what God did? God clothed those sinners by sacrificing an innocent lamb. Now go to Colossians 1, which is in your New Testament. I just got a few flips left. Flip with me a little bit more. Hang out with me a little bit more. I appreciate your kind attention. Colossians chapter 1 is in the New Testament, and it's talking about Jesus Christ in the New Testament. All right? Colossians 1, verse number 16, speaking about Jesus. Colossians is in the New Testament. And the Bible says, By him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your wicked mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Can I tell you, the God that created you was crucified so he could reconcile you, so he could make peace with you, so he could fix and fellowship with you again. And just like Adam, in verse 21 of that passage we just read, just like Adam and Eve, your sin has alienated you and separated you from God and has actually made you God's enemy. He says you're alienated and enemies in your mind, where the bubbles go off, by wicked works. You've thought what you thought should be what you thought, and you did things that you should never have done, but you thought about it first, didn't you? And then you went and you pursued it, and God says, now you're separated from me, now you're my enemy, you're under my wrath, but in verse 22, he says, like that lamb in the garden, your Savior was slain to make peace with you, to make peace with you. The only question is, do you want to make peace with him? He's willing to make peace with you. Why wouldn't you want to make peace with him? You know, for reconciliation to happen, when you reconciliate, right? When you bring people back into harmony. For reconciliation to happen, both parties have to be willing. God is willing. God wants to fix in fellowship. How about you? Are you willing? If you're not willing to take a free gift that gives you eternal life, then you must have an ulterior motive. You must like where you are right now and think you're okay and that God must be wrong or that crazy Italian down there must have had too much sugar on his Frosted Flakes today. Like, I don't, I don't get what's going on with this guy today. I don't understand that. But if you're willing, God is willing. Because, he, because there's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. You see, in the cross... Jesus Christ provided for the forgiveness of everyone. But not everyone will be reconciled with him because not everyone seeks to be reconciled with him. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor under Hitler's regime in Germany. He was eventually executed for his faith and his, you know, his position But you know what Dietrich, I read his autobiography and his biographies about him. You know what he did? Dietrich Bonhoeffer forgave his Nazi guards. 
the ones that beat him and executed him, Dietrich Bonhoeffer forgave them. But he was never reconciled with them because those guards didn't want to make peace with him. They were happy to just kill him and go on their merry way. And Jesus Christ has died on the cross. Forgiveness is available. Reconciliation has got to be your willingness to come to the table and agree to the terms of ceasefire and surrender and stop fighting against God. Did you ever notice, if you go back to Luke 24, well, just hurry with me now, Luke 24. Did you ever notice, go back to Luke 24 where we started. Did you notice something peculiar about Luke 24? How those ladies found the tomb. Every detail is important. Look at Luke 24. Look at verse 2. It says, They found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. Why did God leave the stone rolled away? Why did He leave it with the door open? You know what He's trying to show us? Hey guys, the debt has been paid and the door is open. If you're willing, come. See the place where the Lord lay. The debt has been paid. The stone is rolled away. And the door is open. And the door is always open. As long as you got breath, the door is open. But you got to be willing to come if you want to be reconciled. So why are you troubled? Number one, God's words will never fail. Number two, God's willing to fix and fellowship with you. And number three, and quickly, why are you troubled? Because God will finish what he started. God will finish. You know, on the cross, Jesus Christ cried these great last words. It is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. But it is finished. The payment for sin was done. The atonement was complete. The blood had been shed. There's nothing you can add to it. But God said, I'm not finished. (laughs) He's just getting warmed up. That's what he said. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not the end of the story, folks. It's the beginning of what God wants to do in your life. You know, the Apostle Paul, years after getting saved, years after getting saved, He's sitting in a jail, writing to some Philippians in Macedonia. And he says, you know what I want to know? I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. He'd already been saved. He'd already been ministering. That's what got him thrown into jail. But you know what Paul wanted to know? I want to see the power God has to resurrect a life. I want to see the power God has to transform lives. That's amazing. I'm thankful for everybody that gets saved. Amen? Every guy at the rescue mission, every person on a Sunday morning, every person you meet with, deal with, talk with, friends you get to witness to, family members you get to reach out to, moms you get to open the Bible with. Praise God for that. But you know what really strokes, stokes my fire? When somebody plugs in and starts growing. And a life starts changing. And habits start changing, and people start coming, and marriages start healing, and families start being pieced back together, and addictions start falling out. That makes me want to jump up and hit the ceiling. That's amazing. And it breaks hearts when it doesn't happen. But you know what? For every one that does happen, I'll try to ignore the thousand that go by the wayside. But just for that one, it's worth it. You're all worth it, brethren. You're all worth it to look out at your faces and see it with an open Bible, trying. You know what? That's the power of the resurrection. God flips that circuit breaker when you get saved, and then that power just starts flowing to all those other avenues of your life and starts changing things. Verse 36. You know some things that change? Lord, let me give you a few here. 36. You know what the first word Jesus said to them in 36? You can read it for yourself. The first word he says to them is peace. Peace be unto you. You know what the empty tomb is? It's the beginning of true peace in your life. I wonder, do you have peace? I know you might have religion, but do you have peace? Peace. Peace. The Bible says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our ceasefire between us and God. He took the wrath. He took the hell. You know what? He declared us righteous. You know what that did? I was an enemy before, and God made me on the winning side. There's peace now. I'm on the right side now that I've been saved. There's peace. But that's only the beginning. Then the Bible says a little later, and the peace of God, 
which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He starts by making peace with you. And then that peace grows where you have the peace of God, which other people don't understand. Listen, man, I cry my tears as well. But you know what these people say to me at work? You seem so calm about this. Calm? Did you see me last night? I cry myself to sleep? But you know what God does? He gives you this supernatural peace that just washes over you. And people don't see you falling apart when you are on the inside. You know what that is? That's the peace of God. That comes upon you after you make peace with God. That's just the beginning, the cross, the resurrection. Listen, a Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. You love that Bible? The Bible says you love that Bible. There's no rock you're going to trip over and stay down for too long. There's no stumble that's going to knock you out of the race. There's no problem. It'll hurt you, and it'll bang you up, and it'll make you cry some bitter tears, and it may give you some skin knees, but you don't have to stay down if you love that Bible. That Bible can give you the peace of God, peace that the world cannot take away. It's amazing. I wonder today, are you offended, or are you unoffendable? I know you say you love that Bible, but if you really love that Bible, you wouldn't be so offended all the time. Because the Bible says it gives you peace. Are you listening to the Bible or just those boom, boom, boom? Do you take your eyes off the word and start looking at the bubbles, you know, and chasing the bubbles instead of chasing the scriptures? An old Puritan said, if God be our God, he will give us peace in trouble. When there is a storm without, he will make peace within. The world can create trouble and peace. But God can create peace in trouble. That's, that's a good thing, right? He'd give you peace. That's a good fruit. You look at verse 45. Let me show you another one. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You know what he did? And it says in verse 48, and ye are witnesses of these things. You know what the resurrection also is the start of? It's the start of a new purpose in your life. Those guys were fishermen, and now they're going to become fishers of men. Those guys were huddled in a room with Katie bar the door. They were afraid for their lives, and God changed their life, and they stepped out in the streets of their hometowns with people that wanted to kill them, and they boldly declared the gospel even in the face of mortal danger. How does that happen? Explain it to me. What did they drink or take, or what shrink did they see that transformed a bunch of unlearned, ignorant fishermen into 12 people that literally turned the world upside down. We are here today because those men boldly declared the truth that God had given them. How does that happen? The power of the resurrection. To transform a life from huddled in the corner and afraid, will God ever use me, to God using you to bear witness to his power and his love. Hey, you want a purpose? You want a flag to follow? Get in with Jesus. Find Jesus Christ. He'll give you a new purpose. You go to 2 Corinthians. Hold your place in Luke. Go to 2 Corinthians. I just got three stops left. I'm going to hurry. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. A new purpose. Here's the new purpose right here. 2 Corinthians 5. I know I get excited. It's hard not to get excited about this stuff. I don't know. I got excited about John Morant dunking yesterday. I got excited about that. I got to get excited about God coming back from the dead, right? Right? He is good, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Why are you dealing with the skeletons in the closet? Throw this closet out and step into the light. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us, here's the new purpose, the ministry of reconciliation. 
To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. If you're saved, say amen. Just one time. Amen. amen. If you're saved, guess what? You have a new mission. And you got a new message. You got a ministry of reconciliation. And you know what God can do? This is amazing. You come to Christ broken. Broken heart, broken life, broken mind, broken everything. You know what God can do? God can take your broken vessel and use your broken vessel to put things back together again. That's amazing. I know you feel broken now. I feel broken sometimes too. But you know what God does? God works with broken vessels. You bring that broken vessel to him, God says, watch me make it new again. Watch me use your brokenness to let that sweet fragrance come out and fill the house and be a blessing to somebody else. How does that happen? I don't know. You know what happens? God. Pat, I don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't know either, but God. Pat, I don't know what's going to happen with my family in the next few days or weeks or months or years. I don't know either, but God. If you get God in on it, he could take those broken things and fix them so they don't have to stay broken and can be used for his glory. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Verse number 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Right? Not just the ones that were in the class a few weeks ago. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. You know what God is beseeching these believers to do? He's telling them, be reconciled to God. Make peace with God. Get over those problems, and let's go forward for God's glory. That's what he says right there. Those Corinthians had scars, man. They had sin in that church. They had divisions in that church. They had infighting in that church. They had lust and fornication, all kinds of wicked stuff in that church. And they got over it. They got forgiven. They got it right with God. And now he's saying, okay, let's be reconciled and let's keep going for God's glory. That's what he's saying to them there, man. You see, how do we do that? Are you taking heed to that? Can I bring it down to our level? You know what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? He says, be at peace among yourselves. You know what, Christians? Be at peace among yourselves. That's one way you could take God's reconciliation this way and let it live out that way. Be at peace. I wonder, are you coming together or are you coming apart? Are you assembling yourselves or just attacking yourselves? You loving each other or just getting drunk on strife? Is there unity or division. Because if my God that I read about in that Bible wants reconciliation with Him, shouldn't that then lead to reconciliation with each other? Right? If my love this way, shouldn't it then go that way? But you got to be willing. You got to be willing. Can I give you one more? Go back to Luke. We're going to Luke and then John and then we're done. I'm hurrying. Luke 24. I'm just trying to show you some of the things that are possible with the resurrection, some peace, a purpose. And Luke 24, here's the last one I'll give you here, and this will be it. 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. You know what that is? He's talking about the Holy Spirit there. And he says, I'm risen from the dead. Now I can give you my Holy Spirit of promise. You know what that Holy Spirit living inside you, Christian, is going to do? It's going to give you power to do things you never thought you could do before. I'm not talking about walking on water, but I'm talking about witnessing to your friends. I'm talking about loving your neighbor. I'm talking about forgiving those that have offended you. I'm talking about blessing those that curse you. Those things are impossible, humanly speaking. But God, but God, but God, but God. He gives you his power. He told them, you shall receive power 
After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And on that day of Pentecost, that Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them like a rushing mighty wind, and they were forever changed. And next thing you know, they're out there in the street preaching for everybody to hear. Why? God had given them power. You can't do it in your own strength, folks. Everything I said here today, you can't get saved by your own efforts. The Bible says when you believe God, He gives you the power to become the sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are saved, you need that same power to live this Christian life. Lean on Jesus, man. Lean on Jesus. You know, I was doing some research. I'm not a car guy like Mike or some others, but I was reading about the most expensive car in the world. Right? I'm never going to see it. But the most expensive car in the world, according to my astute researching skills, is the Bugatti La Voiture Noire. There's only like one of them in existence. million it was sold for. Took two and a half years to build it. Right? Goes top speed at 261 miles an hour, 1,500 horses under the hood, right? Zero to 60 in like two and a half seconds. Like an amazing piece of machinery. Only one of them exists in the world. But you know what this amazing piece of machinery is useless without power? We could do all this stuff. We could preach. We could give out tracts, we could counsel, we could do all kinds of stuff. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't get in there, we're just all spitting in the wind, as my pastor would say. And man, you need God. You need God. Finish with me in John. Go to John. You need God today, and I need God today. Don't run from him, run to him. John chapter 14, verse number 25. Here's Jesus shortly before his betrayal. And here's what he says, John 14, 25. He says, these things have I spoken unto you, 14, 25, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You know why you don't have to be troubled? Because God has given you his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit's called the Comforter. And the Comforter right now is trying to remind you, I don't hate you. I want the best for you. I want to help you. I want to save you. I want to restore you. I'm not finished with you. If you're still breathing, I'm not finished with you. I'm not finished with you. I want to help you. I'm telling you the truth. I don't want to destroy you. I want to draw you to myself. Jesus Christ is the way. Jesus Christ is the truth. Jesus Christ is the life. He's not angry. He's the comforter. So if your heart's troubled, we need the comforter to come and help us in these endeavors. Remember when Moses smote the rock and the water would come rushing out to refresh the people in the wilderness? You know, like the rock that was smitten, the risen Christ, he wants to refresh you with his Holy Spirit. He's been smitten. The work is done. Now the Holy Spirit is able to kind of live inside you and comfort you and bless you and be a part of you. 28, look at 28. He says, you have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. You know what he's saying? I told you I'm not finished right now. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be delivered unto these evil people and crucified, but I'm coming back. And I'm coming back and I'm going to do something glorious. And can I tell you, folks, as, I, as we get ready to close here, the Savior who started something 2,000 years ago is not finished yet. Amen. There's still some people here he wants to save and forgive. There's some Christians here he wants to build and strengthen. Amen. But I know we live in a very troubled world. Troubling. Trouble within, trouble without. But Jesus Christ wants to know, why are ye troubled? I know what they're saying on the news, but why are ye troubled? You know who that ye is? If you see that ye in your King James Bible, it's not because they were drunken pirates writing the Bible. You know, ye are, nothing like that. No, they were just, that word ye means all of you. It's an Elizabethan word meaning all of you. And he's looking at his 11 disciples, not the lost people. He's looking at the people that supposedly were following him. And he says, how come all of you disciples are troubled? Why are my followers 
so struggling. As Christians, you may get troubled. Amen? Amen. But you don't have to be troubled. You don't have to stay troubled. There's always something you can do with God to make things better and get God in on it. You say what? You've got God's words. They'll never fail you. You've got God's desire to fix and fellowship with you. You've got His Holy Spirit inside of you if you're saved. You don't have to stay troubled. Last verse, chapter 16, verse 22. I'm going to go home on this one. 16:22. 16:22. Here's Jesus speaking to some troubled disciples, some aching disciples, some heartbroken disciples who are getting ready to say goodbye to their dear Master and Savior and Lord. And in 16:22, he says, "And ye now, meaning all of you, disciples, now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again." And your heart shall rejoice. And your joy no man taketh from you. Brethren, you may face some trouble now, and I'm sure some of you are going through some deep, deep waters. But you know what? The resurrection comforts us that it can be okay. It can be okay with Jesus Christ and His promises. Let's stand for prayer. Just stand with me, please, if you could. Let's just take a moment here.